Hello, I'm Dominic Senna, the director of Swordfish, and I'm here to tell you a little bit about the picture. The original scripted version of the opening scene called for the uh, scene to open in black, and all you were doing was hearing Gabriel's voice over. The trouble with Hollywood is they make shit, etc., etc. And it went on for quite a while, and I wasn't comfortable with that. I, I wanted to make sure that the audience was paying attention uh, from the get-go. I wanted to make sure they were hearing every word that John had to say, and I thought the best way to do that was just hard cut to a close-up of him talking directly to camera as if he were sitting across the table from you. It's hard to take your eyes off someone when they're actually staring right at you, so I thought that was an effective way to start it, get people's attention right off the bat, and then go from there. Short-sighted directing. As far as the um, environment was concerned, I, I didn't want the audience to know right off the bat where John was. I wanted to keep the environment a little mysterious, leave a little something to the imagination. And I didn't want them to be distracted with it either. I wanted to make sure they were concentrating and, and looking at John and listening to him. But to play somebody who has an evil streak in him, you know, and still be charming and have an audience like him is uh, there's a, it's a short list. And I, I met with John one night late, midnight. You know, he's a night person. And uh, it's, it's John, I, John wants to have dinner with you at 12. 12 means 12 midnight. You know, and I met with him and had dinner with him and gave him my pitch on the picture. And uh, he told me he turned the picture down like six times, turned the script down six times previously. But he liked my take on it. And uh, he said, I'll do it. You know, and, and I was relieved. because I said, you know, I have to tell you something. If you had said no, I was going to have to figure out a way to get out of this picture because I can't think of who else would have come in and played the role. What, still no bus? Anyway, what John's doing here, basically in his own sort of unique way, is telling the people that he's talking to that unlike the character in Dog Day Afternoon, Gabriel's serious about taking the lives of hostages if he doesn't get what he's demanded. Before we started shooting the scene, I'd actually thought about getting coverage conventionally. You get the coverage of uh, the two people he's talking to, Hugh Jackman and Don Cheadles, and I went in wanting to do that. But once we started shooting the scene, John was just so interesting and, and, and fascinating to watch that uh, I thought it was better to not even do the coverage of the guys. I thought it was enough to just sort of feel their presence on the edges of the frame. And you'll meet them shortly anyway, so I surprised myself by not even turning around doing the coverage. Actually, the way we did this was it's an anamorphic picture, but this one particular sequence was shot with special spherical lenses called swing and tilt lenses, which allowed us to put a very specific part of the frame in focus and throw the rest of the shot radically out of focus, foreground, background, both. That way, it's sort of we sort of coaxed your eye where to look in the frame. And I thought it was mysterious, you know, as far as just the presentation of him. I, I didn't want to see the background because at the end of the day, when you reveal that you're in a coffee shop, I didn't want people looking at bags of coffee beans and coffee pots and coasters and things for four minutes. I thought it would sort of destroy the mood. I know that this was John's favorite scene in the film. I mean, I think it's the scene that hooked him in and, and got him interested in wanting to do the picture. I mean, he loved the dialogue. I mean, we shot it word for word as it was scripted. And, uh, I mean, he had such a great time with it, and, and you could tell he was into it. He'd, he really nailed it, and I thought he was, it was a terrific performance. And it was just great to just let him ramble and, and carry on. And you have no idea who he is now until right now. 
And at this point, when we cut wide, you realize they're in a coffee shop. And in fact, the irony, of course, is, is that the film he was referencing about uh, a bank heist and a hostage situation is exactly, in fact, what's going on here. Move. I won't say it again. One of the things, too, that interested me about the script was the unorthodox structure of it. Right off the bat, you open with this bank heist hostage situation. It's already underway. All you know is a number of characters have been thrown together. You don't know who they are. You don't know what the connection between them is. You don't know how they managed to end up in this situation. It's just happening before you. I just found that to be infinitely more interesting than the usual sort of heist film scenario where you sort of you meet the guy who wants to steal something and he assembles a crew and you go meet those guys and they look over the blueprints this was just what the fuck's going on i mean it's just happening i don't know who he is i don't know what the relationship to these characters is uh and you know that you'll find that out eventually down the road but i thought it was a good exciting interesting way to just start the picture Now, this was a situation that was unfolding here, and my concern was that we had taken the time, a few minutes, to set the situation up. We'd start to build the tension here with this hostage, and it was all going to build and build and build, and I was concerned that the end of the scene was going to be a letdown. Joy, what are you doing? Handling this. Look, don't fuck with this guy, man. You're going to get these... As you'll see, she eventually ends up exploding along with the two SWAT members that come to try and rescue her. But we'd taken so much time and energy and care to set it up and did a pretty good job of sort of winding people up. And it kept gnawing at me that how was I going to end the scene that where it would really have some impact and make an impression that wasn't just sort of a letdown. So that evolved during the pre-production process. I knew that the moment when the hostage actually explodes had to be a memorable one. There she is. I thought she was a great idea. Skip Woods, the writer, had each of these people wearing vests of C4 explosive. So don't fuck with me. Johnson, you and your partner, move up between those vehicles. Hey, stand down. Get back. Stand down. Get back. And here we go. I think this I think this all works pretty well. It's fairly effective. And, of course, what uh, the SWAT guys don't know at this point, because they haven't been listening to Gabriel, is that she's loaded with explosives, and when she steps off the sidewalk, she's going to blow up. So uh, she's trying to get back into the bank. Gabriel knows it's too late. They're trying to scream to the SWAT guy to don't take her away from the bank, and he can't hear them. I don't even know if the audience expected this to actually happen. I kept thinking, well, maybe they think somebody's going to rush up there and save her at the last moment. I don't know if they expected the um, hostage to go boom like this. Uh, but this is what I was building to. The, the scene had been pretty effective up till now, and I didn't want to just sort of have this one-second shot where she goes boom, and the scene's over. So I wanted to make a pretty strong impression, and this was a technique I'd used before in commercials. Uh, I think just experiencing... That one second, one or two seconds when she blows up in ultra slow motion where you get a, a sort of a glimpse of the effect it's having on the entire intersection and the people around it, uh, it was pretty strong stuff. 
the challenge was coming up with an effective ending. And I thought that was pretty good that we went from this massive explosion and distilled it down to one ball bearing with someone's blood still fresh on it and the protagonist's reflection in the ball. Four days earlier. Again, there are pieces that are coming out here, and you still don't know exactly what's going on, which intrigued me. You've seen what's just happened, and now four days earlier, this is Axel Torvald. Rudolf Martin, I think, did a, did a good job here, and I kept thinking when I was looking at him that if anyone does the Freddie Mercury story, this guy's a strong contender. But uh, anyway, you don't know exactly who he is yet or how he fits into things, and that's the way the next several scenes are actually going to unfold. You'll meet a bunch of characters, and eventually you'll figure out how they all relate. This was at LAX. We took over... Uh, some of the space and actually built these rooms right into one of sort of the main lobbies. He's got a great face. I think he played Vlad the Impaler in a made-for-TV movie recently. It was great. Anyway, this is just to sort of set up that he's a fairly crafty guy and had his wits about him. He doesn't get very far, but he, he, he makes the effort. I like the transition here at the end of the scene. Uh, you see him get taken to the ground and uh, sort of a, a matching low-angle shot. You'll see him go down, some legs will cross, the next thing you know you're in another setting. All right, here. Better be important. Pull me out of session. Wouldn't have asked you if it wasn't, Senator. We just received a communication that Axel Torvald... That's Sam Shepard and Tate Donovan. Sam Shepard plays Senator Reisman. And Tate Donovan is his assistant, and he's brought some bad news. So what you find out in this scene is that these guys are involved. Somehow they're worried, they're concerned about the fact that uh, Axel Torvald's been apprehended. And other than that, you don't know why. You just know that somehow he played a part in something covert that was going on. And we just leave it at that. It's short and sweet. Sam's pretty good. Sam's pretty effective. I'd never actually considered him for the senator we were talking about Nick Nolte and then somebody handed me some photographs of him with these round wire rim glasses and a pinstripe suit and shit he looks just like a senator and he's great he passes the buck beautifully that was in downtown Los Angeles actually a, a defunct telephone building I believe and again here you know here's a just another glimpse of where are we we were somewhere in uh, in Texas and there's this beautiful woman who seems out of her element here and uh there's Hugh Jackman hitting golf balls on the roof. 
this scene was actually a very lengthy scene. It was scripted. It was like three pages long. It went on and on and on with uh, double entendres and various sort of innuendo going on. At the end of the day, it was so, so long-winded that uh, we actually ended up cutting it down to just what had to be said, which, is, again, is one of the issues, one of the problems that people don't seem to realize, the writers don't seem to realize. You look at a scene like this, and in pre-pro, you say, you know, most of this is gobbledygook, and we ought to just lose it and just get, get it down to the essence of what needs to be said. And people's opinion usually is, well, just shoot it all, and we'll, we'll cut it out later. And, of course, the fact is that how do you know he's swinging the golf club when you take seven lines out? How do you know that she's in the same, same part of the trailer? Uh, it makes for some pretty choppy cutting at times. We were lucky this time around. We actually managed to stitch it together, but uh, there's a lot of the exchange missing. The irony, of course, is, is that she's supposed to have a great swing and he's supposed to be sort of a hack. And, of course, Hugh plays golf and he's got a damn good swing and it was hard to make him screw it up. Hallie'd never swung a golf club before that morning, so she had, like, an instructor come over for two minutes. It was a terrible swing. We had to try and cut around. It was awful. She looked good making that bad swing, though, no doubt about it. I'm looking at the environment. This was a trailer my production designer built, you know I mean? He's... His name's Jeff Mann. He's been with me on the last couple of pictures and years of commercials, but he's got great taste, great eye, looks good. He knows how to make it look good for the camera, and uh, he's invaluable. So here she is. She's getting a little dirty. I mean, I think the bottom line here was that you realize later that Gabriel basically said to her, go deliver Stanley Jobson, and that's what she intends to do, hook or crook, if the... Uh, if the Amherst thing doesn't work, she'll try something else, which she does in the upcoming. Eventually, in the upcoming scene, it's like she bails on all of that and just calls a spade a spade and says, you need some money? Come with me. But not before she gives it the old college try here. I gotta go to work. Right. Great work, greasing pump jack. And Hallie here is amazing. She, she's going to get thrown out this door. And I said, well, let's, uh, let's put a bunch of mats there and, uh, so you don't get hurt. And she insisted on getting thrown out this door without any mats. And we thought she was going to break her neck. And she did it time and time again and didn't. She's pretty ballsy. And that is the antithesis of this dumpy trailer in the middle of Texas. That's Drea DiMatteo, actually, of Soprano fame. She's slumming. For us, she came in for a day and uh, did a cameo. Pretty effective. You, you hate her guts in no time at all. I just want to talk with Holly. It's Saturday. She's at soccer practice. You know it's illegal for you to talk to her. Don't do this, Mel. I asked her to sort of, you know, be a person that uh, the audience is going to love to hate because we have to root for Stanley, and uh, I think she did a pretty effective job at it. You sort of hate her guts in the first 30 seconds or so. Stop calling me that, Stanley. Look, I just... I just want to see my baby. The idea here was, of course, to, to create a character that the audience would hate in, like, no time flat because we had to be rooting for Stanley, so uh, I think she came on and was pretty disgusting and reprehensible and right out of the gate. And of course, you know, this is, you'll find out later that uh, 
that uh, her husband is a porn producer and there's you know, pornos and tapes and devices and rubber objects and crotchless panties and stuff hanging all over the place. After I finished Gone, I was looking at scripts. I'd read like 60 or 70 of them over the course of a couple months, and so many of them are so predictable. You read the first act, you know everything that's going to happen after that. This was the first script I read that I thought, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, the structure was unorthodox. It was it was interesting, and, and, and I liked the characters a lot. I thought the Gabriel Shear character was wonderful. Uh, I thought all of the characters were interesting, and I just I like the idea that it started with this bank heist and then went back four days and retold the story. And this scene uh, was there to sort of prime Stanley and get us ready for the next scene where Ginger happens to be ready to offer him a bunch of cash to simply come and meet her boss. If you want a chance in hell at getting your daughter back, you better listen up. Unless, of course, you want to stay here in this loser existence. You know, Hugh Jackman was a name that was brought up to me by the casting director. I hadn't seen him in anything. She said, go see X-Men. I did. Uh, I liked him, but I didn't think that was necessarily a film that you could gauge his acting chops by, you know, the sort of mutton chops he had and the sort of hooks. But I liked him. I did some homework, looked at a couple of his smaller films that he'd done in Australia, which were terrific, like down-to-earth performances, you know, about families and things. I thought it was great. Uh, I managed to intercept him at the airport. He was he was leaving, and I caught up to him before he got on his flight. We met, talked for like 20 minutes. I thought he was a great guy and fresh, no pretense about him. And uh, I went back to the studio and said, I'd really like to hire this guy for the role. What I liked about him was other names had come up, good actors, you know, uh, John Cusack, Val Kilmer people. But I could already see their performance. I could see it through to the end, and that sort of, Bored me, not to take anything away from those guys, but but I was familiar with them. What I liked about Hugh was he was a wild card. I knew he was a good actor. I could tell from the clips I'd seen, and I was excited about the fact that I didn't know exactly how he'd play the role. You know, and also the idea of the computer hacker. We went more along the lines of the William Gibson uh, hacker rather than the sort of the geek, you know, the Coke lenses geek guy who can't get a date. I mean. He, Hugh Jackman, in my mind, came more from the William Gibson school. He was in the rave scene. He was a pretty hip guy, uh, not like, I think, the sort of stereotype you see of a lot of computer hackers. Do you see a Finnish flag hanging on the wall, Ikea boy? This scene is it's the interrogation of Torvald. And uh, this is where we get to meet Don Cheadle, who's playing Agent Roberts, who's going to come in and interrogate him, ask the other guys to leave for a few minutes. Fucked up now, Hamlet. When we talked about Agent Roberts, Don Cheadle's name was the first that came up. You know, I think he was on everybody's short list. I mean, he just brings credibility to anything he does. You know, he's a terrific actor. If you can get him... Uh, I think he does a great role. It's almost like a, a, a given, you know. He's just so darn good. You know, his name came up and I was in. It was like, fine, let's not even talk to anybody else. If we can get Don Cheadle, done deal. <laughs> Did he really say that? 
funny. One of the things about this scene, I think, we did make some improvements on this scene. As it was originally scripted, it called for Gabriel's men, who were about to show up in a few moments, to enter the building. They distract Roberts, and they barge into the interrogation room and shoot Axel Torvald and his lawyer. And it, to me, it just seemed like it just wasn't smart enough. I thought that they should have a plan. They should do something a little more interesting, maybe something that you weren't expecting. So I think one of the things I'm happy about is, is that uh, the way we introduce the characters and, and how exactly the assassination of these two men goes on. Uh, in addition, what it did for us what, that I liked was if you have the two villains just sort of like barge in the door and shoot into the interrogation room and shoot the guy, you've got this moment of action. But what we were able to do by restructuring the scene and having them actually enter into the observation room was create a sense of tension to the scene. In other words, you're going to find out they're on the other side of this mirror, and you know why they're there, and you know what they're going to do, but it's the tension builds. You don't know when they're going to do it, how they're going to do it, and I think it, it just made the scene more interesting and made them a little smarter. I'm already dead. The only way I have a chance is back in Europe. There's Vinnie Jones, uh, who I used in Gone in 60 Seconds. So again, this is what I like. This is this wasn't actually scripted this way, but I like the idea that we introduce them on the other side of the uh, mirror, and they get to actually see what's going to play out here. I don't know his name. Now, this is another thing we added, actually. This interrogation scene didn't originally have um, intercuts of the Gabriel Shear character. In other words, once he starts to talk about Gabriel Shear, he... You know, rambled on about him, but it was kind of cut and dry, and I thought a great way to introduce John Travolta, the Gabriel Shear, Gabriel Shear character, was via these little glimpses. The car he's driving in this scene actually is a TVR, a Tuscan TVR, and they weren't actually even being sold at the time we got our hands on it. We saw it and loved it, and they were made in Britain. They send us, They sent us four of the automobiles I think they go for like a hundred and some thousand dollars and uh, we thought they were terrific you know you've never seen them before that's that's rare and uh, they were right hand drive cars and they're not legal here they don't meet the emissions control standards but they were wonderful to look at and unique which was kind of cool I think John comes across very cool here you know he he has a great look to him we went round and round about what Gabriel Shear should look like we did some tests and uh, we were opting for the long hair, and we convinced him, and, and he showed up with that little patch, soul patch on his chin, and, and Gabriel Shear was born. You don't find him, he finds you. And again, here, as Torvald is speaking about how he works with Gabriel Shear, and of course, now that he's been apprehended, here comes his replacement in Hugh Jackman, Stanley Jobson character. Right there. I get paid, and I leave. Again, the production design, Jeff Mann built the sets, and I just think it has a great look to it. I haven't seen an interrogation room that ever looked interesting. And uh, we worked pretty closely together, but uh, he's just got a wonderful eye. Said it's important. I can only tell you what I've done for him so far. Well, that's the start. Oh, that's actually something Don added. They actually had a little chit-chat there, and he walked down the hall, and Don said, what if I slam him with the door in his face? And uh, that actually worked, and that was a good thing. John, you eat the dick. 
What we tried to do throughout the film was sort of assign different looks and different color palette to each of the scenes. Uh, we were going contrary to what a lot of people are doing these days, which is the, the uh, ENR look, which is where you drain the color out. Everything looks sort of black and white with a tint to it. And we purposely went against that grain and just pulled out the gels and the colors and assigned a different look to each sequence. And I think it was ballsy, and it, and it definitely put a stamp uh, on the picture. Paul Cameron's the DP, and he's done a great job. I've worked with him for years, tons of commercials. He shot Gone in 60 Seconds for me, and he's game for anything. We sort of put our heads together, and I'm pretty happy with the way it looks. I think he did a great job, and it has a rich, saturated look to it. I love the idea of the fact that uh, uh, Vinny's on the other side of the mirror. Otherwise, it would have been a one-second bang, you know, if they'd barged in the room and it'd be over. This way, we managed to actually sustain and hopefully bring some tension to the scene for a couple minutes. And it makes the, the, the people who are involved with Gabriel seem a little smarter. They've sort of one-upped Roberts, and he's no slouch, so I think he knows he's got something to worry about. Who are you, Roberts? What do you want? This is the uh, the nightclub scene where Stanley and Gabriel meet up. And again, look at the club was terrific. We just took over a warehouse in downtown L.A. and put it together. Totally different look, lighting palette, you know, yellows and reds, turquoise shades, very saturated and pretty sexy looking. Halle Berry, too. Yeah, so here's, uh, here's where they actually meet up. I think John does a great job with this scene. He's one of those few actors, I think, who can actually play this sort of disgusting, reprehensible, evil, villainous character, and you still like him. It's not an easy thing to do. Look, I uh, flew 1,500 miles for this meeting. How about we get to the point? No, actually... You flew 1,500 miles for 100 grand, but that's not the point. Helga, meet Stanley. This scene coming up is a perfect example of what a responsible director has to actually contend with. Uh, this scene, as I recall, we were rehearsing it, and it was, oh, and by the way, don't forget to cover that both ways, which was absolutely insane and couldn't be done. I said, well, yeah, you tell them to give me a couple more days and we'll shoot the whole scene over again. Uh, and she'll stand there and just look at him. Do you like tequila, Stanley? <laughs> so I called Joel down to the set and said, Joel, impossible, dude. Here's the thing. You want her to give him a blowjob or not? And uh, he was way in favor of it. We actually looked at it once without and did a few takes, and we thought, just to see how it played, we rehearsed it. It was really dull. Even the script girl came to me and said, it's better with the blowjob. 128-bit encryption. What do you think? Impossible? Well, nothing's impossible. Good. So it can be done? Maybe slide in a Trojan horse hiding a worm? Something like that. Is this an interview? Sort of. Marco, let's give him some incentive. Hey. Hey, what are you doing? Relax, Stanley. 
Now, whether you like it or not, you have to deal with the dreaded television version of the movie, which, if you're lucky, you'll never see. That blonde is not in his lap because that would not fly with the network. So you just have to be sure that when you're shooting the scene that you got enough close-ups that the editor has something to work with so he can actually hobble together a version of it that you might not be pleased with, but at least they won't be able to sue you down the road. And so we, uh, we did that. The last thing you want to do is ask your actors Okay, now do a take where she's not in your lap. Now do take where she is. I mean, it's a ridiculous drain of their energy, and it's just bullshit. Oh, she's good, isn't she? More time, more time. Come on, Stan. 20, 19. <clears throat> Gabriel needs a replacement. Uh, Axel Torvald gets apprehended, and he needs someone as good as Axel to replace him. He isn't going to tell Stanley any more than he needs to tell him. And so he's sort of given him the little white lies uh, uh, constantly throughout the story. It's all about misdirection and, uh, and misleading him, letting him think it's a cyber heist when, in fact, they're actually going to barge into the bank and, and take it by force. So he's going to tell him as little as he has to. I was just, just fucking with you, Stan. Actually, in this scene, it's obvious that one of the purposes Ginger serves is originally she was there to go get Stanley and deliver him. And here, when he's having second thoughts and probably thinking these people are crazy and I'm getting out of here, which is what he's telling her. Look, I'd do anything to get Holly back, but if I end up in a box or back in jail, she's there to reel him back in and uh, convince him to stay on board. Which she does. Uh, this, this is nothing amorous about it at this point. Basically, uh, after she sort of uh, stops him from talking about guns, etc., she basically just lays it on the line and says, "Look, if you've forgotten, just in case you've forgotten, you live in a trailer. You got no money. You want your daughter. Use your head." And the next thing you know, Stanley's back on board. And she'll do that a number of times throughout the story. Use any means possible or necessary, whatever works, to keep him in the game. Let me break it down to you, Stanley, one last time. You live in a trailer. You're a felon. Halle Berry, I thought, was a great choice. It's actually someone that Joel Silver mentioned. He brought her name up. He'd worked with her in a couple of other pictures and uh, and brought her name up. We met with her, and, and I thought she was terrific. I mean, she she seems just right, considering the sort of international vibe that Gabriel has. I mean, she's not a California blonde. She's not a New York babe. She seems very sort of cosmopolitan. She seems like she'd be right at home 
uh, on the Riviera with her top off, sunbathing. She seems like she fits in anywhere. She's just a great sort of global babe. Why don't you come and I'll explain it to you there. Come on. Gentlemen. Here we are back at the FBI lab. I don't even want to hear it. This is a scene that essentially just uh, establishes that Roberts, in fact, has a history with Stanley Jobson. The two know one another. And this was something actually we added to the script as well. Originally, Roberts didn't get on to Stanley. He sort of stayed at a distance and, and watched Gabriel Shear, which was sort of weird. Uh, he didn't come into play very much until late in the first act and barely made an appearance in the second act. So it made more sense to me that it might be interesting if he begins following Stanley Jobs and not knowing that Stanley's the bit player in this game and that ultimately Stanley will lead him to Gabriel Shear. So he's following the little guy now. Ten-year-old daughter. The new husband owns Backdoor Films. It's a shady porn production house out in Chatsworth. You know, they have pretty good production value considering that, you know, they have to shoot on video. Did you know he uses his wife in a couple of the videos? No, I know, I know, I know. She's like an actress. Yeah, that's great. Are you done? Who's the girl? The original part of Agent Roberts was pretty sketchy. In fact, actually, originally, he is killed in the second act. Uh, Gabriel's men barge into a restaurant and shoot him. And the point I was I had to make to the studio was, look, he's he is the antagonist. He's the only guy we have who stand between Gabriel and Stanley who are going to want to go to the bank and, and steal the money. He's the only guy who stands uh, between them, and to kill him off in the second act was a, a huge mistake, and uh, I won that one, and we actually wrote him into the third act, and that's why he shows up in the opening scene as well. Later. Is Gabriel's house, and actually it was a, a house up in Chatsworth that was built for Frank Sinatra in the 60s, and that rat pack had many a party here, actually. Break the code. Used a logic bomb, dropped it through the trap door. No, you didn't. didn't. The background in that last shot, by the way, was added uh, after the fact uh, that you can't see downtown Los Angeles from Chatsworth. Uh uh. How did you do it? Look, I don't know exactly. I just uh, see the code in my head. I can't explain it. Let me show you something. So what we need from you, Stanley, is a worm. A hydra, actually. A multi-headed worm to sniff out digital footprints across an encrypted network. What kind of cipher? A vernum encryption. In this scene, basically, the idea to get across was that Stanley thinks he can maybe sort of bullshit these people, and what he realizes is that Ginger knows her shits when it comes to computers. She's pretty savvy, so he's not going to be able to sort of bullshit them and uh, lie to them. What if I were to tell you I'd give you $10 million? That would pretty much cover all your problems, yes? Unless, of course, it's not possible. But uh... I have to say, before we did this film, I knew very little about computers. I mean, I know how to get on and, and write letters, and I can find some of the, uh, some of the porn... 
but other than that, uh, I knew very little about it. I mean, we had a great tech consultant named Rick Lupton who knows everything about computers. I mean, he's a fanatic about it, and we just took a crash course with him. He was there every other day talking us through what he was designing, how it worked, what was a worm, how did a worm work, and so he was uh, pulling us aside and giving us little crash courses every couple days and trying to get us up to speed. I think I've forgotten it all already. Give it a try. It's going to be pretty hard without a gun to my head. Actually, Rick was left with the thankless task of actually having to give form to the worm. A worm is actually just a bunch of scrolling data, and uh, he was very worried about that because the, the computer geeks were going to have his hide for actually trying to give it a specific form and shape. And uh, he had to do it anyway. I told him he had to do it. We'd fire him. So he actually came up with a pretty interesting uh, interpretation of it, but there is no such thing as a three-dimensional Worm is just a bunch of boring scrolling data, which was would have been sort of not something an audience could have followed. We had to give a shape and a form to it so you could actually see what it was doing. Hugh and John got along very well during the making of this. They, they, they became good buddies. And they can both actually sing and would go off in the corner and use, actually got a great voice and did Oklahoma and done a number of musicals and John, uh, from Greece, etc. So they would actually sort of carry on, which was kind of fun. I should have recorded some of that stuff. I probably could have sold it. Anyway, so Stanley at this point is, is hooked in. $10 million sounds pretty good to him. I don't think he was expecting that sort of payday. So he's in, at least for the, uh, for the time being. Morning. Uh, the infamous poolside scene. This actually worked out pretty well in that we had Stanley be the one who was sort of nervous and couldn't put two words together and ends up backing up and bumping into the chair, which was kind of fun and took the onus off of the um, uh, exploitative aspect of it, or at least it took it down a notch. We shot the scene both ways, by the way. She also did a version of it with the bathing suit on. There weren't nearly as many people standing around at that point. I think Hallie was fine with doing the nudity. You know, once she got the idea of it, which was that I'm not sort of flaunting it. I'm just sitting here sunbathing, and I'm oblivious to it. And actually, the, the, the sort of embarrassment and everything falls back on Stanley. And once she thought that she could actually get the upper hand and embarrass him and get him, get him sort of mumbling and fumbling and not being able to put a sentence together, she thought that was fun and, and a way to sort of embarrass him. And, and then she went for it. We had to keep saying, Hallie, cover yourself up. The scene's over. And she finally did. <laughs> Cameron Grimes is a terrific little actress. This girl is a pro. Joel kept asking me, how are you getting this nuanced performance out of her? And I said, she just shows up in the morning and does it. You don't have to say anything to her. She's like an adult. And I was really surprised. I mean, she's like 11 years old, you know, and what you expect her to do, I'm expecting her to do the sort of broad delivery and everything sort of down and subtle, you know, and the lip movement and eye. And um, she's, she knows what she's doing. Hi. This scene and the next one between Stanley and his daughter were important, I think, to the film because it's, 
the opportunity you've got here to sort of see the relationship between them and, and the bond, to know that these two care about one another, it was important to get across and try not to be too corny about it, but, but it was important that you believe that they cared about one another and wanted to be together because from this point on, every decision Stanley makes is based on wanting to get his daughter back. So you needed to believe that he cared about her and, and loved her and wanted her back. They're good in this scene. Subtle, it's not too corny. You are heavy. No, I think she's had to do a lot of growing up and she's had to take care of herself. Obviously, her mother's uh, not there for her, you know, and her father's off making a porno somewhere. So she's not happy with the existence she's gotten, loves the idea of being with her father, but knows that he's gotten in a lot of trouble already, which you're about to find out in more detail in the next scene. But uh, she cares about him and doesn't want him going back to prison. So she's happy at the same time, worried for him. I thought you was good in this scene too. This is one of my favorite scenes. I had hardly anything to do with it. It's like, oh, well, the explosion is one of my favorite scenes, and then this one is, and this is like the antithesis of that, but I thought it worked out pretty well. And right about now, Stanley's going to find out that Roberts is there, and Roberts is the last guy that Stanley wants to run into, which is why he bolts. <coughs> I like this scene, actually. I thought for a, a foot chase, it turned out pretty well. And I have to say, I'd be remiss not to mention Dan Bradley, my second unit director on this, because of schedule conflicts and things. I wasn't able to shoot as much of it as I would have liked to, and I was worried about how it would turn out. I mean, we're doing this and, and a few other pieces, but when the tumbling down the hillside starts, Dan actually uh, had to carry the ball on a lot of that, which... I think he did a terrific job on. These are stuntmen, and, and again, I was there to shoot a few of the close-ups and sliding down the plastic, and when you could see the actors, and, uh, and couldn't do much else, which pisses me off to this day that Dan got to have all the fun, and I had none, but... Uh, he did an effective job. We got together, talked about it, and made sure he had the gear he needed. And uh, he went off and did a great job. And, and again, what you don't realize here is that this tumble down the hillside is actually three different locations. There's the sort of dirt cliff side, which was one part of it. Then there's sort of a grassy uh, hillside, which is the second part of it. And then ultimately when they get down to the beach, there's that's the third part of uh, this what's supposed to be this one cliffside. Stuntmen again, they did a hell of a job. I don't know what we paid him, but it wasn't enough. And there's the third location. So 
three locations make up that one tumble down the hillside. Ouch. That hurt. Joel kept turning up the sound on these crashes, smacks into the car until it was like insane. And to beg him, Joel, come on, turn this down. He'd break his back if he hit the goddamn car that hard. I loved that loudness knob. The funny thing here, too, is, of course, we shot this part of the scene before the tumble down the hillside had been shot. And so we're guesstimating about how much damage would be done to their suits and how much dirt would be on them. And so we sort of go moderate on it. And then, of course, Dan comes back with these killer images of these guys just, like, careening down the hill and smashing into the ground. And uh, Don Cheadle saw the rough cut and said, Jesus Christ, if I'd known I was going to look that good coming down the hillside, I would have ripped this suit to shreds. So he actually wanted me to tone down the hillside, if you can believe that. I said, Don, no, 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 no. Fuck you. Fuck you. You just want to cut through all the pleasantries, get right down to it, huh? Okay, fine. I can help you with your daughter, Stanley. <laughs> I remember it was overcast when we were shooting this. This is all artificial light. And we were just socked in. Paul Cameron took out every light on the truck and lit that hillside and put edge lights on these boys and... I'll be damned, looks like a sunny day. You couldn't see the trucks for the fog. You broke the law, okay? Well, we were both doing what we had to do. And the carnivore program is back in full swing. Angela, the guy on the uh, left, the agent on the left, actually was someone who came in for a day's work to be the guy who stands outside the door in the interrogation room. And we realized, uh, well, Don should have a partner, and so... Angela's job went from a one-day stand-by-the-door and open it when Don walks by to his partner throughout the run of the picture. So uh, I think we bought him a house in the valley. I'm just a sucker for Disneyland. We done? Good. Tell Torvalds I said hello. You can tell him yourself if you're not careful. Forget about Chris Young sometimes in the score. He actually did a terrific job, and he had about a month to score the entire picture. He was a workaholic and really delivered the goods, I think. Stan, you're in way over your head. I know. Well, this is where they say, let's keep an eye on them, and then ultimately later you see that they're surveilling the house. Underwear and guns, that's a good combination. Underwear and guns. Uh, anyway, this, this scene is supposed to play that, uh, you know, Stanley discovers she's wearing a wire, confronts her, she confesses that she's working for the DEA, and um, tells him, go ahead and deliver the worm to Gabriel. We're not after you, we're after him. Take your money and get out of here. And what you find out later is that the entire thing was staged. In fact, he was supposed to discover her wearing the wire. The plan was that Gabriel and Ginger would make that happen to allow Stanley to think that he sort of had a, a green light to continue on with the heist. In other words, uh, they're telling him, we, we're not after you. Go ahead and finish the worm, take your money and leave. So if he was concerned about the fact that the authorities were going to bust him, this sort of quelled those fears. And at the same time, she was looking to sort of get his confidence, let him know that there was an ally inside 
in case he needed to speak to her, wanted to talk to her, if he was having any doubts about uh, going through with the deal. I don't know if the audiences actually get that or how much of that they get, but uh, that was actually the bottom line here. Of course, the scene plays out, you know, very much like she's genuinely been discovered. Ginger? I'm DEA, Stanley. I tried to add a little sort of look between Gabriel and Hallie at the end of the scene that sort of said, well, something more is going on here. Uh, you know, he doesn't go over and sort of give her a lot of shit. There's a look between them that sort of says, that worked. And again, you have to be subtle about that. It's like, don't get too overt. You know, if they end up winking at one another, you give the whole thing away. And at the same time, you don't want audiences to say, well, wait a minute, that's not fair. I didn't, I didn't know that this was a setup. I thought she was really working for the DEA. That look hopefully says something. And there's a little bit of a smile here at the end, like, ha, huh, okay. heard of Operation That's should be a familiar looking coffee shop. That it was the coffee shop that the opening scene takes place in. Finally, Gabriel is gonna tell Stanley what his plan is, why he needs the worm from him, and uh, that he plans to steal nine and a half billion dollars from the DEA through a bank's computer system. In nineteen eighty six when Operation Swordfish was terminated. And hopefully, you know, some of the audience begins to realize that this environment looks familiar and, and you realize ah oh, that is the coffee shop that was in the opening scene in fact that's the table they were sitting at and uh and then the last bit of the puzzle is ah oh, there's the bank that gabriel and his men are shortly to siege it's a sweet deal i can't watch this scene actually without thinking of john he pulled a gag on us i don't know how he did it we never catch him at it but he's sipping this little uh espresso and he asked for one more take of his scene in the close-up and and uh, when he lifts the little cup up he had this like three gallon coffee cup that uh, <laughs> held about two quarts of coffee and everybody was hysterical and i don't know where he gets where do you get a, a three gallon coffee cup john likes to keep it pretty light on the set he doesn't like to get too serious i mean when the cameras roll he knuckles down but otherwise he wants to have fun. He doesn't want to, you know, get into the whole method thing. That shot actually is a pretty good, uh, pretty good comp shot. That's actually shot on stage, the green screen. That that uh, hillside is is actually put in green screen. Again, a nice, tasty little set that Jeff Mann designed. Two DS3 trucks going in there. That's serious bandwidth. Thermal scopes indicate a huge heat load in the main living area. Could be mainframes. The house was listed by Celebrity Estates in Beverly Hills. It was leased two weeks ago by a blind corporation. These images here of, uh, through the binoculars were actually shot in about two minutes at the end of the day when everybody had panicked. The sun was going down, uh, and it was like, Get John, get Hallie, get you, get him, get him the hell out of here. Let's just walk around, talk, move around, move around, leave, walk inside. And we shot it literally like in two minutes with like three cameras. It couldn't even get an exposure. We thought, I hope we got something. And I think we got enough to actually pull it off. That was a close one. Ah, just in time to watch Stanley find our worm. Last year at college, I created the source code for the worm I've been using for years. 
in the basement through a file room is the only PDP-10 still active and on the internet. I don't know how many people know it. It's an ITS machine and kept online just for historical sake. So I hit my worm there when no one would... Guys are actually playing the scene against nothing. There's nothing whatsoever on those screens. It's actually all been created after the fact. So they're just doing a pretty good job of staring at blank screens here. What we did do was we, we tried to come up with an idea for going back into the bowels of his old alma mater. And as it happened, we were shooting in a location downtown L.A. And we went into the basement and looked up at the ceiling. And this was there. And I just said, get the second unit here, get them down in the basement, get some track laid. And uh, we, we moved some stuff around, put a computer in the uh, utility room. And uh, that became the journey through his old alma mater. And here you go with the thankless task, as I was saying earlier, about Rick Lupton having to create an icon that represents the worm. I mean, in fact, it's just scrolling data, but that would have been dull to look at, and you wouldn't have been able to sort of perceive what it was doing in the later scenes. So he actually, the original version was actually a sort of slithering worm that looked like something out of the abyss, and uh, it was not well received. So Rick went back to the drawing board. There's T. Donovan arriving with some bad news to a senator's house. Senator, seems you have gotten yourself into a predicament. Is that right? I don't follow. Well, download your file. Basically, what Reisman's worried about at this point is the fact that Gabriel's being surveilled, and uh, that could possibly lead back to incriminating him. And so what's on Reisman's mind is bail. Let's cancel the heist. I don't want to get in trouble, and we'll regroup. And Gabriel's opinion is, I know what I'm doing. I can handle any situation. I've come this far, and I'm not stopping. A vacation. Have I ever failed you, sir? That's not really. This actually is the first time in the in the film that uh, Reisman is connected to Gabriel Shear. Too great, but we'll regroup and seek alternative means of finance elsewhere. This operation is moving ahead. Everything is under control. This is the first time in the film that you realize that Reisman and Gabriel Shear are connected. In fact, they're participating in some covert operation to heist the DEA funds, and the senator is involved. He's, in fact, actually the, the head of what you find out is a covert organization called Black Cell. And at this point, he's disappointed to hear that Gabriel has decided to go ahead with the heist. Reisman's worried about his own ass at this point and doesn't want to take any chances, so he asked Kaplan to take care of Gabriel. Who he might bite next, you understand? Yes. This is the most painful voiceover line in the picture. This was added after the fact. Yada, yada, yada. Like you'd really stay on Tate Donovan all that time. <laughs> That one hurt. Ah, this scene didn't exist in the script. It was something that came about as a result of some discussions I had with Joel and Skip Woods, the writer. The problem I was having was as we were shooting the picture, I began to realize that we were talking about Stanley coming and, and attempting the impossible of building this worm, this multi-headed worm, and, and he was going to be paying $10 million to do it. In fact, all that was scripted was a scene where he retrieves uh, a worm from his college days and, uh, and him stumped sitting at the computer not being able to accomplish anything. And uh, my feeling was, 
look, we've got to see this guy do something. And the paranoia and the fear, of course, was somebody sitting at a computer is incredibly dull and uninteresting and no one wants to watch it. But the catch-22 was he's paid $10 million. Let me see a little of the virtuoso of uh, Stanley Jobson here. Show me the magic. What about him is so special? What about him is, why is he so passionate about computers? Show me that he's accomplishing something. And this is the one and only scene where he actually goes to work and um, and actually builds the worm. So this was an afterthought. I said to Joel, I think we need it. We set an hour and a half aside at the end of a day, set up three cameras, set, set uh, Hugh Jackman down in front of the computer. It was not scripted. Uh, and we just said, okay, look, here's the deal. This is what you're going to do in this take. And these are the parameters loosely. I had our tech consultant standing off camera throwing uh, computer hacker words and phrases. Adam and uh, Hugh would just pick up on the ones he wanted and run with the ball. And uh, it was meant to be sort of a, you know, a, a montage of a night in the life of uh, Stanley Jobson building the worm. So this was all ad-libbed and, and shot it in an hour and a half. And, and I think it accomplishes what I set out to do. That uh, you get a sense of the guy's passion about computers, and they're actually not that dull to watch. And and you see him accomplish something. The next time you you see him, he hands the disc to Gabriel, and he's he's done the impossible. So we had to see him make some progress, and that was the sequence. The idea there was that he was so close to finishing that uh, had he not stopped to come get another bottle of wine he could have actually put the worm together and been out of there great little set that jeff mann built in the bowels of some store in ventura while we were shooting the bank sequence we were up there for a few weeks and he built this in one of the vacant stores oh that's a surprise stanley wasn't expecting to see what he thinks is his employer corpse in the cooler and he's on his way out of there and there's his employer again. So Stan's a little confused at this point. That was a cheat actually there. Gabriel actually takes the wine bottle out of his hand, suggesting that he knew he'd seen the cooler, and we changed that to him picking up keys instead because we agreed that if he would actually knew that Stanley had been down there and seen the corpse, he wouldn't be able to live with that, and Stanley would probably have to be put out of his misery. That was a little cheat. This is the establishing the idea of misdirection, which comes into play later in the story in an important way. The mind believes. Hmm. What's going on? We've got a tail. Hold on. Overall, I'm pretty happy with this chase scene. It was done actually in like, I think first unit had like four nights to do it and second unit had a couple more, but um, it's pretty ambitious. There must be a hundred and some 150 cuts in it. And anybody who's shot car chases knows that if you're shooting it a day in the daytime it's uh, it's a freebie but when you're shooting at night nothing's free if you don't light it you don't see it and that took time so by the time you uh you figure in you've got to light the streets prep the crashes practice the stunts rig the explosives rehearse with the actors once you've done all that the time you've got left is the time you've got to shoot each night which is a few hours uh, so I thought it turned out pretty well for a pretty tightly budgeted and pretty tightly scheduled uh, sequence. Again, Dan Bradley made a major contribution on second unit. 
and actually what I liked about the scheduling of this sequence was we actually had first unit and second unit shooting at the same time a few blocks away from one another so I could set up a shot while they were lighting it I'd get in uh, the car run a couple blocks see what Dan had set up check the camera angles and the blocking and then get back before we were ready to shoot and the comfort factor was uh, good that way uh, I was able to keep an eye on things and and know what was going on because I spent years as a cameraman and a director cameraman and the notion of somebody else shooting for me is a scary one. Up until I hired Dan, my take on what a second unit director was, was the guy who shoots the data on the computer screens and the tachometer and, and the wheel screeching. The motto was, if it's breathing, it's first unit. And uh, I actually had to relinquish some of that in this sequence, and he did a hell of a job. Hard left, hard left. This was shot in downtown L.A., a uh, familiar haunt of mine over the years. <laughs> Some of the same streets that uh, we shot Gone in 60 on. That's a simple effect shot, lockdown cameras. All the shots were done in pieces, you know. They weren't actually driving the vehicle through those, in between those semis, but uh, it worked. The diner was built by Jeff Mann at the end of that alley. did a great job. Oh, that was pretty loud in the theaters when I saw it. Anyway, so this is news to Stanley. Up until now, he thought Gabriel was a, a bank robber who was going to steal the money through the phone lines, and the next thing you know, he sort of sh killed eight men and seems pretty handy with uh, automatic weapons, and Stanley's freaked at this point. I think he wants out. Well, I'm not going anywhere until you tell me what I'm involved in. Look, Stanley, I like you. You're on my good side. But don't confuse kindness with weakness. You have 12 hours to get the Hydra, so get in the car. This scene actually is uh, one of the weaker ones. It was uh, scripted. The content of it was wrong. It was uh, about Hallie coming and saying, well, don't leave. I, I, I want to make this bust and uh, convinces Stanley to stay because she wants another notch on her belt, was, which was, of course, the wrong idea. And so we've had to put some lines in people's mouths off camera. Uh, basically, we end up reminding Stanley that if he wants his daughter... If he sees it out, he'll get the money and, and his daughter back. But uh, that wasn't what was shot. Bend Oregon. Well, this is interesting for a number of reasons. I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory what happens, but Sam Shepard lives in Minnesota on a farm. Sam Shepard doesn't fly. Sam Shepard drives, period. That's it. And so Sam needs about four days' notice so he can get in his 4 by 4 and drive 1,500 miles to Bend, Oregon for this scene. And then after we shoot this scene, we've got to schedule around him for a few days so that he can drive the 800 miles down to Los Angeles where the rest of his scenes take place. 
He's uh, an interesting character. Unbelievable. We didn't know if he was going to show up the night before. Yeah, he's in a 4x4. Four four. He's supposed to be on his way there. He showed up. He kept that fishing pole, by the way. He loved that. That was a couple thousand dollar fishing pole. He's a, he's a fishing freak. It was fine to give it to him. It kept him in a good mood. You got to see the irony in that, Senator. The chairman of the Joint Subcommittee on Crime, Fishing, and a Catch and Release Stream. As I recall, this is the first day John was on camera, and he actually showed up with an allergic reaction or something. Anybody had a, had a, a bump on his lip, and we couldn't shoot any of his close-ups in Bend, Oregon. The close-ups you see are shot in a desert three months later uh, <laughs> where we shot the diner sequence. Believe it or not, they match pretty damn well. But that is boiling desert with a couple pieces of plywood behind them with grass stapled to it. We couldn't get any closer than this, or you'd see this the sort of reaction he had, the allergic reaction. But unfortunately, politicians do. Uh, also, another thing is these two scenes, actually, the scene with Gabriel and Reisman and the Kaplan scene were actually scripted as two separate scenes. The Kaplan scene followed this scene, but I just thought it was a better idea to intercut them. It didn't make much sense to me to sort of see Reisman get killed and then start a new scene with Kaplan. As soon as you see his face, you realize, you know... Uh, you know what's going to happen to him. I mean, it's obvious once Reisman's bit the bullet. So it didn't make sense to have them play out separately. Uh, it was a lose-lose either way. No matter which scene played first, you knew what was coming in the following scene. So it worked out best to intercut the two of them. Joel actually said to me when he saw the dailies from that explosion, he came to me and he said, that's the best explosion I've ever seen. And I thought, seriously, Joel? And he says, believe me, I've seen a lot of explosions. I've seen more explosions than anybody. And that's a great explosion which you know, was a, his way of complimenting us. The reason it was so cool was because people usually do explosions in wide open spaces. The car's usually in a parking lot and there's nothing around it. You put it in a low-slung garage like that with all the sort of interesting architecture and low ceiling and it looks great, which we knew going in. But he was impressed, so that's good. Yes. I'm calling from Credit Suisse in the Grand Cayman to notify you that there's just been a transfer of 10 million US dollars into a new account in your name. This is great. This was originally scripted as a warehouse scene. Uh, Jeff Mann and I had had our fill of warehouses and gone in 60 seconds. No way we were going into a warehouse again. So we just said, what if we find a derelict theater to use instead for the sequence? And uh, so much more interesting. I mean, if you're shot in warehouses, you know there's a sameness about them. No matter where you aim the camera, it all looks like the same space. These theaters offered me so many interesting rooms and shapes and textures it was so much more interesting to shoot it here and i was actually able to sort of start you know in the upper balcony when when things were rosiest for stanley and he felt like he was almost about to get out of there and then as things sort of spiral out of control and and he gets in deeper and deeper until he's finally in over his head i was actually able to use the balcony to start it and down the stairs and across the mezzanine for this sort of uh reveal that gabriel makes to him about who he works for and eventually they sort of uh, go backstage to the theater and ultimately they end up down in the orchestra pit on ground floor where the seating is. So there was sort of this descent that took place over the course of this pretty lengthy conversation that they have, this exchange. But it always looked interesting. And it was a great choice. It was a great choice at the Pulasco Theater, downtown Los Angeles. That was a gem. All this money just to protect little old me. That's right, Stanley. Because wars cost money. War. Mm. What is it good for? Who are we at war with? Yeah, this is great. We just got to shoot every square inch of this place, and everywhere you looked, it was 
terrific. Anyone who impinges on America's freedom. Terrorist states, damn it. Someone must bring their... I must say the studio was pretty, pretty easy going about things like that. I mean, we would look at uh, the location that uh, was listed and say, nah, we're going to shoot it here. Nah. Now we'll go to a warehouse. And now we'll shoot this over in uh, this space. And uh, I think uh, Joel had, Joel's confidence has sort of been boosted, and he felt pretty good about me at that point. We'd been working together for a while during the prep, and uh, and he has a good eye and good taste, and he let us roll with it and was complimentary throughout the show. See the dailies and come and say, looks fucking great. Your people are great. Having a good life, eating bonbons, the American dream. And just think, in the end, you'll have done your small part in ensuring America's way of life. You're a hero, Stan. Well, Gabriel's not too worried about him. Stanley doesn't know it yet, but Gabriel has his daughter, so he knows Stanley will be back. Uh, this is up in Ventura. California, they let us come into their town, take it over for a couple of weeks. Some of them didn't regret it. I think business was up a little bit while we were there. But that was amazing. They just let us take over the town. The coffee shop was rebuilt uh, from the ground up inside. The bank was totally redone, completely new facade. The ground floor was, you know, stucco and kind of cheesy looking. We went in and redid it completely. The great thing was we were able to actually have a town out there as opposed to shooting it on the back lot and being strapped with a couple of cheesy, phony-looking storefronts. But, uh, yeah, they actually let us come in for a couple of weeks and take it over. And then, actually, the fact of the matter is, is actually after we destroyed the facade of the bank, etc., etc. We had to leave all of that debris in the intersection for days, and the city was fine with it. It was just amazing. It was just a, uh, a disaster area with cars and vehicles and uh, Brinks trucks overturned, and uh, we just walk away at night and come back the next day, and there it was. You usually have to sort of sweep that stuff up and then put it back out again from scratch each morning, which wastes a lot of the day. This is something we went round and round about in this scene where Stanley goes back to his ex-wife's house looking for his daughter. Was how to get back to the bank location, how to get back to the moment in time where the opening scene ended. 
And so we went round and round about it and actually ended up reusing a couple of elements. And one of the things I wanted to do was use the ball bearing. I'd come up with the idea of, the, of reducing that chaos in the opening scene to a single ball bearing and the protagonist's reflection in it. And I thought that would be a memorable enough image that when we have to come full circle, that that ball bearing might be a, a conduit that would remind the audience, ah, there's where the opening scene left off. So we reprise that sort of still array shot and there's Stanley and this is the moment in time where the opening scene left off. This is how we left the street at night. Anybody who happened to travel through there who was like lost or had lost their way, God only knows what they must have thought. And some of this is second unit photography as well. I didn't have the time to shoot all of those images. And again, the boys did a pretty good job. That was your decision. No, no, you did that. How many more people die is up to you. I want that plane on the runway in 25 minutes. This is, again, is part of the misdirection. Gabriel's insisting he wants a plane on the runway. And what you find out later is he has no intentions of getting on a plane. But it's all part of the, the misdirect. And Stanley has certainly been on the receiving end of misdirection for quite a while and doesn't realize that he'll, he'll pick up on it later. Dad? Oh, oh baby. Are you OK? It's okay, it's okay. You son of a bitch. Did you really think that I wanted it to come to this, did you? I told you that I will sacrifice as many lives as I have to to protect this country, including my own. Dad. You let her go. And I'll get you your money. You finish the job and you both go. Come on, Stanley. The bank interior, I think, looks great. Uh, you wouldn't recognize it. It was a funky old stucco structure. Jeff went in with the columns, the shiny reflective surfaces and ceiling pieces and made it look great. We scouted a couple of other locations that were prohibitively expensive to redo, but these people just welcomed us with open arms. The coffee shop was a, a funky old used bookstore that uh, was just stacks of books piled all over the floor and they let us come in and just strip it down and start from scratch of course you have to turn it back to the way it looked before you got there that's the hard part I'm not usually around for that part if somebody takes care of it <laughs> they tell me Stanley hold up this wasn't actually a real bank it was just a uh, uh, a structure that used to be some sort of furniture store or something, but it was just empty. It was vacant. See you around. I doubt it. What's happening? What's happening? The money is gone. Stop her! Go! Run! Oh, run! Go! Oh. Uh, a little speed aperture control shift there. It goes into slow motion. Kind of like that, and like this guy coming out of nowhere and snatching her up. Ouch. What happened, Stan? The explosion scrambled the internal clock. No, it didn't. You fucked me. 
basically what Stanley was trying to do was uh, just buy some time to get he and his daughter out of there. He doesn't want Gabriel to have the money because now he knows how he's going to use it. So he he uh, he tries to actually block the money and have it be sent to various banks repeatedly for the next 10 years so Gabriel can't get his hands on it, but he gets caught. The accounts are encrypted with a 1,024-bit cipher. Even I can't break through the firewall. So here's the deal. You let the hostages go, and I'll tell you where and when you can extract the money. We all walk away. Nobody gets hurt. We all walk away. Nobody gets hurt. I wasn't exactly sure how Stanley could guarantee that, considering they're like the feds are all over the place and the authorities are out there. But uh, I petitioned to lose the line, but lost. What are you doing? Wait. String her up? And then, of course, here's Ginger, who Stanley believes is a good guy and a part of the DEA. And Gabriel's going to leverage that to uh, get him to deliver the money. Look at how long she'll live, Stan. I think because of uh, the way the scenes were shot and there was no there were no giveaways I think the audience believes genuinely believes she's DEA and she's a she's one of the good guys and and she's uh, about to be hung that's one of the tricky things about films like this is you debate how much should you give them on second look do you tell them oh well there was a there was a harness behind her and it was a squib or it was a blank and when Stanley actually has his flashback and recalls some of the things he saw, you have to make a decision as to how much of that stuff you're going to recall and how much of it you're going to say, oh, it was all a, a hoax. Uh, and in this case, it would just it would have gone on and on, and the bottom line was it wasn't that important. So we just opted for revealing less and having the picture run a couple minutes shorter. Eight counts account. She's dangling in that wide shot. She, of course, has a harness on her. Yeah, there were debates uh, from the executives and the writer of, oh, well, should we have some guys come in and put her in a body bag and carry her out, and those would be Gabriel's guys, and should we? And it was like went on and on and on with how much of this are we going to sort of explain, and how much does the audience even care? It's a fine line between, wait a minute, this, that's, that's, that's not fair. You didn't show us that. You know, now you're sort of pulling the rug out from under us, and the other side of it is, is you know, you're telegraphing it. For Christ's sake, you don't have to tell us everything. No one wants a repeat of what happened this morning. Keep your distance and clear the airspace for five miles. What's happening here basically is, is the authorities think that Gabriel and his gang are getting on a bus and they're going to go to the airport and get on a plane and fly out of there. And uh, so the authorities, of course, are going to send some SWAT people there and intercept them when they come. But Gabriel all along has been playing with misdirection and so what we were doing as originally scripted Gabriel actually did end up going to the airport and there was a shootout that occurred and and uh it went on and on and on but what didn't 
seem right to me was the picture was about misdirection. And if he's telling the authorities, I'm going to the airport and I want a plane, the last thing it seemed to me that he should do is go to the airport and try to get on that plane. And so everyone actually agreed with that. Then the, the question became, well, what should he do then? So we knew he was going to get in a bus and we knew he was going to drive away from the bank and we knew he was going somewhere. And uh, at that point, we had to say, well, what can we do? And as I recall, Jeff Mann and I were sitting talking at one point, and Jeff said, well, you know, he's in a bus and he's, he's traveling along. What if uh, we had one of those big industrial helicopters pick him up? And I went, wow, that's pretty interesting. But is it possible? And we looked into the sky cranes, and there are these 80-foot choppers. They carry 25,000 pounds. We knew we could get the bus down to about 15,000 pounds if we gutted it, and so it became an interesting option. We uh, pitched it to Joel, the idea being uh, this sky crane will come out of nowhere and uh, scoop the bus up, and they'll take it to some skyscraper, and the guys will get on a helicopter and take off from there. So Joel loved the idea, and then, of course, I realized that it was probably going to be impossible to actually deliver the scene uh, because we had to have the permission of, of Los Angeles. The city of Los Angeles had to agree to let us fly an 80-foot sky crane uh, through the city with a 15,000-pound chunk of metal underneath it. And uh, they hadn't been terribly responsive to air-to-air shooting in the past, and this was pretty insane, actually, the more I thought about it. So I was worried. I started thinking about alternate endings. So this is never going to fly. And I sent the location scout uh, down there, Rick Schuler. I said, I pushed him out and went, go down there and beg him. I cannot believe he did it. He actually went down there and he petitioned and he met with everybody and he got everybody to sign off. The city agreed to let us fly a helicopter with a 15,000-pound bus through the streets of Los Angeles. I still can't believe it happened. I would have loved to have been in the city council the following Monday hear them say who gave permission for these guys to fly that lethal 15,000 pound chunk of metal over the streets of Los Angeles. I cannot believe they actually let us do it. Everybody thinks it's all special effects. They don't think it's actually happening. They think it's all computer generated, but it's not. We couldn't have afforded to do it if it had been computer generated. We shot it in two days actually. Okay, so here's the, yeah, I'm going to the airport. Oh, misdirection. Nope, we're not. And this took a lot of logistics. Uh, flying that sky crane over the streets of Los Angeles with all of the wires and, uh, and problem uh, elements was a pretty tricky scenario. We had one day to shoot this sequence, and there were a lot of restrictions. But uh, we actually managed to uh, to pull it off. I think it's a pretty impressive introduction to this to the uh, sky crane. That's a big helicopter. It's used actually to lift giant air conditioning units uh, uh, and take them to the top of skyscrapers for huge buildings and complexes and things. Oh, it can't be serious. Hold on. What you don't want to do is get underneath the prop wash of that thing because it'll, like, pound you right into the concrete. It's, it's lethal, which you sort of find out as you go. 
And that was kind of cool. I mean, I thought it was sort of a little over the top, but it was fun, and, and we actually hadn't seen it before. And uh, I was happy we were actually able to deliver the sequence after we'd pitched it and promised it to Joel. I've just been informed the, the bus is no longer en route to LAX. What happened? Apparently it broke through the lead vehicles and turned onto First Street, heading into the city. All right, let's go to First Street. Well, sir, the bus is no longer on First Street. Then where is it? All of the photography with the sky crane carrying the bus was actually done in two days uh, in downtown L.A., two Sundays. And uh, the way we were able to do it was I had about 16 camera crews, and uh, we charted a course. We'd set six cameras at this location. Six would move on ahead to the three blocks down, and the next six would move two blocks over, and we kept hopscotching. It was like a big sort of military maneuver, but we actually shot it in like two 10-hour days, believe it or not. Delta climb. I can't even believe it. A lot of computer-generated work here, but it's the sign, for instance. It's not the bus. The sign's computer-generated. The cable snap is. <laughs> this was actually a set that was built on a hill overlooking downtown Los Angeles. Maybe we ought to rethink the vision. And we actually destroyed the set. It was, this was a one-taker. This was a one-taker. had about 10 cameras. At first, the stunt coordinator wanted us to shoot it for real with the bus actually coming through the building, uh, which we found out later would have killed all of the inhabitants because the bus came through too fast. So we fortunately opted to do it as blue screen. We shot the people running, uh, and then we shot the bus crashing through. This was so easy to pitch and so damn difficult to shoot. What happened was when we came up with the idea of, of the sky crane scooping up the bus, then it occurred to me that, well, but if it just picked up the bus and just sort of puttered along and went to the top of some skyscraper, it'd be like some Disney ride and it would be boring and, and actually dull to look at. And that wasn't going to be enough. So then we sat down and said, okay, well, it's carrying this bus along, but something's got to happen. And then you start going, oh, okay, and it'll veer this way and it'll hit a sign and that'll snap a cable. And, and then it'll go into this uh, office building and it'll snap another cable and the thing will hang vertical and people will start falling out of it. And that sounded really exciting, And then, it, but it was, seemed almost impossible to do. But we actually managed to do it. It's pretty mind-boggling as I look back on this. I won't do this again. We couldn't actually convince the actors to get in the bus when we were flying it over the city. We, we actually had to agree to shoot them on stage. All of uh, the interiors are shot against green screen. And, uh, you know, the bus is hanging. Uh, people are wired in and they're safe and secure, but that was actually shot on a huge green screen stage. Actually, we took over a hangar at LAX and, and uh, rigged one of the biggest blue screens ever uh, to fly that bus around on cables. Pretty complicated, pretty involved, pretty hairy, actually. Take your people secure perimeter around this building, okay? Nick, come here. I want everybody out of this lobby right now. Get them out of here. Okay. Secure these elevators, the stairwells. Anybody coming out in the detainer? This actually, this scene, I remember this day, the scripted version said, uh, Robert shows up at the building, goes up to the roof, and uh, so we had to make this scene up on the day. Uh, the arriving, you know, talking to the security people, yada, yada, yada. But that, uh, actors don't expect that. I think they expect to get pages. And actually, this rooftop of the skyscraper was actually built on a, on a mountaintop. 
uh, north of L.A. Hear that little girl of yours. Maybe I'll see you around sometime. All of this sequence here, they wouldn't actually let us land on a rooftop. It actually wouldn't, as it turned out, it wouldn't support a 15,000-pound bus. So we built this, and it was a good idea. We had a lot more freedom and leverage, and we could design it exactly the way we wanted. So that worked out pretty well. That was a pretty cheesy-looking miniature. It needed a little work, a little help, a little futzing and schmutzing to make it look even close to real, that helicopter. I think it's okay. It's brief enough. Gentlemen. Gentlemen. That was a Shakespearean actor who'd done a lot of theater, and that's his candid and low-key as he gets. Charfoiled Gabriel Shear, right there. The body's dentals exactly match the dentals the Israeli government sent us for an ex-Mossad agent named Gabriel Shear. Excuse me, sir? Yeah. The DEA has no record of any ginger knolls working for them. And I've checked all the hospitals and morgues, and I still can't find her body. Well, look again. I mean, bodies just don't disappear. Right. We could make an elephant disappear in the middle This of is one of those painful things you sort of labor over about how much information Stanley should have when he experiences the flashback how many images should he recall how many moments should he recall before it's belabored and you're hitting the audience over the head or how few feels like cheating it's such a hard call and this was sort of a group grope decision some people said oh you're telegraphing it and other people said i don't have a clue what's going on <laughs> so yeah this is a bad guy stanley Nobody's gonna... so the idea being at this point that stanley realizes he's been played He was being misdirected in a number of ways. Ginger wasn't a DEA agent. It wasn't a, a cyber heist. Uh, nothing actually was what he thought it was. He's figured it out at this point, but there's nothing he can do about it. But the bottom line for Stanley is, is that he does have the $10 million, and he does have his daughter. And I think that's enough for him. So, Navigator, where's our next stop? Hallbrook. Hallbrook. So what's in Hallbrook? The Petrified Forest, Dad. Petrified Forest. Yeah. I think you take the I-40 down to the 180. Cool. All righty. Are you OK, Dad? Yeah, I'm fine, sweetheart. Okay. Don't worry, Dad. It's gonna be okay. We're gonna be fine. I know, honey. 
Meanwhile, in Monte Carlo, what you find out here is that, in fact, Ginger isn't dead. She's showing up at the bank where they transfer the funds, and she's arrived there to access some of the $9 billion. At this point, I don't know exactly what the audience thinks. Perhaps they think that, oh, well, she was behind it. She's alone. She was the operative behind this, and she's fooled everyone, and now she's accessing the money and is going to do whatever she wants with it. I don't think you know for certain yet. I mean, I think some people who watch the flashbacks may have an idea that Gabriel isn't dead, but there's a moment there in that scene, because she's in it alone, that you may think, oh, maybe she's behind it, and and she's going to go off with the $9 billion. And then, of course, here's the reveal that Gabriel Shear himself is alive as well. I think this was the right ending. Uh, Gabriel was very smart. Stanley is a brilliant guy, but he wasn't smart enough to put it together and, and beat Gabriel at his own game. And so I think it was right that Gabriel and Ginger do go off. And the fact of the matter is that I, I hope that uh, some people's interpretation of the character isn't that he's the baddest bad guy. I mean, my take was that he was somewhere in between. Certainly the people he was after, the Bin Ladens and the Husseins, they were the villains. And that ending there suggests that he actually was on the job and in the midst of actually pursuing another assassin and destroying their boat. The final sequence was shot in Nice, actually. We scouted Monte Carlo, but actually Nice looked better and worked better for our purposes, so... Uh, Joel couldn't come to terms with that and insisted that we call it Monte Carlo, but in fact, it's Nice. Uh, and we shot that in a uh, day and a half, one day on the boat and some aerials. That was fun. The original ending of the picture played out like this with Stanley at the morgue and realizing that he'd been duped and that Gabriel had played him. But then... As it turns out, Stanley gets on a computer and somehow or other accesses the $9 billion that Gabriel had stolen and steals it back from him. He's sitting at a diner at a computer uh, at a laptop and somehow he takes the $9 billion away and has the last laugh on Gabriel and it seemed wrong to me. I mean, my take was that Gabriel's played him every moment of the picture. He's, he's got him involved. He got him to deliver the worm. He got him to grab the rocket launcher and shoot him out of the sky, which was what he was supposed to do so that everyone would believe Gabriel's dead. And yet Gabriel doesn't know how to protect the $9 billion. He doesn't know that Stanley could get on a computer and steal it back from him. And the fact that he could even get on a computer seemed ridiculous to me. Uh, Gabriel had been so smart and, and all of a sudden it seemed like he'd taken some stupid pills or something. So I fought against the idea of Stanley actually winning the game at the end of the day and also because it felt very much like uh, the conventional uh, cinema that Gabriel was talking about at the beginning of the film it just seemed like uh, the good guy couldn't win it wasn't in the cards you know Stanley Stanley got 10 million dollars he got his daughter back but he wasn't going to be able to thwart Gabriel Shear Gabriel had been too smart all along so Skip Woods the writer and I began a crusade petitioning that ending, that Gabriel Shear, in fact, be able to hold on to the money and that they'd be satisfied with Stanley getting his daughter and the $10 million back. 
I just thought it made Gabriel look kind of silly, and the original scripted ending had him learning that all of a sudden he'd lost the $9 billion, and he kind of went, oh, well, we'll learn to love another day, and they take off in the boat and seem silly. And this was actually the, the other thing that I was petitioning for, and actually won, was the thing that bothered me all through the picture was that Gabriel Shear talked the talk of the Patriot, but he never walked the walk. And my worry was that you were going to see Gabriel Shear at the end get in a boat with a babe, with all the money, and people were going to go, well, so was he a patriot or was it all a scam? Was he a shyster and a con artist? And I thought it was important that we see him do something that, in fact, verified and validated that he actually was a patriot. And that last image there was a pitch that I opted for, and, and actually the guys bought it, which was that... He was actually on the job, and that was an assassin on the boat, and he takes him out. And basically, that's it. Um, you know, it was a difficult shoot. A lot of hard work went into it. I worked with the best crew I've ever had. Jeff Mann did a hell of a job as a production designer. Paul Cameron, the DP. Special effects gang, Boyd Shermas, had to go to 27 different houses to get the effects done because we couldn't afford the first-class houses and uh, everybody dug in and, and pulled it together. It's the best crew I've ever worked with and I think they did a hell of a job. You know what the irony is when you, when you work on a movie is you spend so much time with it, by the time you finally finish it, you can hardly stand to watch it. You've seen it so, so thousands of times, you know. I mean, I like this one. I think it's a better picture than Gone in 60 Seconds. Gone had very little story to it. It was, it was what it was. Uh, I think I think it's a pretty good picture. I mean, still, what you find is when when you're doing, you know, big budget, you know, commercial popcorn summertime movies, uh, there's x amount of latitude there. You know, it's you're not going to make memento. You know, I think I think there's a structure, there's a formula. I think this one broke some of the rules. Uh, at the same time, you know, it's it, it's not Schindler's List. You know, it's a it's a hopefully an entertaining, exciting, summertime, you know, popcorn movie, and uh, you know, uh, you get a little of this and a little of that extra, but you know, that's what we set out to make. You know, so I think that's I think we delivered the goods on that front. Well, that's it. That's the end of the picture. I I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed talking about it. This is Dominic Senna, the director, signing off.